everyone and welcome to the 22nd instalment of Digital Foundry Direct Weekly. It's our uh, show where we basically talk about the tech news of the week and what we're doing on the DF Supporter Program and also discussing our various projects. And of course, taking supporter Q&A. And uh, we've assembled the triumvirate for this one. First of all, John Linneman. Hey Rich, as you can see, it's sunny out and I'm s behind me, you can find 2007 era HDR Bloom. Look at that. It is. It's overexposed. The, the the detail's gone, but you know, there it is. So next gen. So next it's gen. It's very next gen. And he's already made his uh, his presence known, Alex Batalia. Hey there, Rich. I don't have any bloom today. It's a little bit overcast, but really, really hot. And I've got tea, so everything's good. <laughs> okay, good. Um, let's move on to the first discussion point then. So, Flight Simulator has arrived on Xbox Series consoles. Apart from a trailer or two, we didn't really know what to expect going into this one, but I think it's fair to say that our expectations have been met and exceeded. Alex? Yeah, so this one is interesting because back in the day, uh, last year when I covered this game uh, through a variety of videos, we really quickly found out that on the GPU and CPU and memory side of things, this game was just beating PCs into oblivion, you know? Heavy. Heavy, heavy. Probably, I mean, based on what I've seen, it's one of the heaviest PC games currently available. Like, I mean, maybe only Star Citizen is up there in terms of, like, pushing pushing systems, right? Yeah, it really is in terms of, especially uh, memory subsystems. That was, you know, that's something that you really only have exclusively on PC, this split pool of memory, and you can put a whole bunch of stuff in RAM and require users to have 16 gigabytes or even more. Uh, so, the, you know, wondering how they would bring this into the Xbox uh, series consoles was, uh, you know, something we've been wondering a lot about. And when we look at the product now, we'll should, by this point in time, have two videos out on it, the initial one, covering the game itself, as well as an interview I had with Lionel Fuentes, the uh, technical director on uh, Sobo on MFS or MSFS. Uh, and wait, 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 Alex, before you continue talking about it, I just want to tip my hat to the what they did there for you, where they actually had like a film crew set up to make the like, so we've done a lot of remote interviews, obviously, especially with COVID. And the way these guys did it was phenomenal. And like, man, I would love to see this become more common but i understand it's not that feasible especially with work from home but i just wanted to say that compliment them for that because it's really nice asobo and microsoft are very accommodating to make this interview smoothly and i, I basically didn't have to do much for it other than prepare for it which was <laughs> a reassurance um yes john uh but getting back into that they were kind of explaining that one of the biggest things uh to actually port this onto the console version was not so much so uh, necessarily getting the CPU code running that much faster, or even the GPU code, because, you know, I would say the, especially the Xbox Series X has a very competent GPU, uh, especially in rasterization and compute performance, uh, but it was actually squeezing down the game's memory footprint. Memory, yeah. memory, memory. So in that interview, they describe how there was a lot of things of getting rid of duplicate data, uh, you know, anything that could be streamed and did not need to be resident in memory became streamed at that point in time. So they've made it less, uh, you know, taking uh, the system RAM or VRAM and the consoles there. And they're also using the velocity architecture, they're using direct storage, and they're also um, doing the real-time decompression hardware to put on essentially as much as possible 
or getting as much as possible out of RAM as quickly and as often as they can, because that was the biggest hurdle they had in getting it on there. And in the end, we're looking at a, a game, I think, which uh, running by default at 30 FPS, which is kind of like the standard that we're used to seeing uh, for Microsoft Flight Simulator, especially on PC, because how heavy it is. And it, and it holds up really well there. Just the only things that I noticed uh, that I think are less awesome uh, is the UI on console, which I think requires a mouse and keyboard oh, in the current yeah. iteration. That's about it. I think they did a pretty good job considering the limitations of a gamepad. Mm -hmm. But obviously, yeah, this it's a simulator. It's very complex in terms of what is available to the user. So yeah, so talking about Flight Simulator, um, the video, the first video is out doing exceptionally well, and it is good stuff. But we didn't actually have the precise PC settings that the consoles were using. And uh, after the fact, but before the interview, we do actually now have those settings. We can't publish them in full, unfortunately. Unfortunately, but has it changed your insight into the game any further? Yes. Well, um, so the things that are very important to the visual makeup of Microsoft Flight Simulator are going to be set to ultra, like I mentioned in the review. That's why the most obvious aspects of the visuals, like the clouds, uh, the detail at a distance of things like buildings, uh, vegetation, and terrain, are especially on Xbox Series X, are all set to the ultra setting. That's like very important stuff. That's the thing that stands out to you. Things that are uh, kind of ratcheted down a bit to lower level settings, whether that be the low setting or medium or high, are things that have to do with squeezing into the uh, Xbox's more limited RAM pool. Even the Xbox Series X's more limited RAM pool, which is a lot less than what you can find on like huge PCs. Uh, so that's the kind of insight I got about it. They, they, were, they could be really heavy on the GPU side. They could also be surprisingly heavy on the CPU side uh, because they were targeting 30 FPS. But anything that had to do with uh, VRAM or uh, memory consumption had to be turned down or optimized. So that's the, the gist of it. It's, it's very close to Ultra, but there are some tactical things set to lower settings, of course, uh, that make a lot of sense. They were talking also about um, dynamic terrain level of detail. Is that right? Yeah, something that's not at all possible on the PC version, which just has a static uh, 0 to 200 value, with 200 being the Ultra setting and um, uh, what is it, like 100 maybe being the high setting? Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> the uh, the Xbox Series X specifically can float, I presume, but depending upon load or memory configuration in the area you're in, uh, can float between the 100 or 200 value, something we don't see on PC, uh, which uh, makes it impossible to get exact like-for-like -like settings on PC. But at the same time, when we see console games, what we really want to see is that level of customization and this, you know, the sheet of uh, values that the team at Asobo sent to us shows that they really did customize uh, all these little values and even more on top of that uh, to make the game run as well as it does. So, what do you make of the reaction to the to the reveal of this port? Um, I think overall it's been sort of super positive. I mean, we have tried to get the message across that it is essentially, you know, Series X is getting an ultra level experience. And it was actually quite heartening when we did receive those um, that, that settings breakdown. I think they actually pushed harder than you did in your optimized settings. Yeah, they did. Because from for my optimized settings, after a certain point in time where I realized like the high setting is good enough for a lot of things, they you know Asobo was like actually the high cloud, the ultra clouds look quite a bit better in some aspects. So they did you know tailor it. One thing in terms of the reaction that people. 
Uh, I do really like that, at least from a certain uh, part of the fan base, from you know games in general, that people are coming to discover what Flight Sim is about. And people are loading up the game, not sure what to expect, and they load up the globe, they go to their hometown, and they see that it's actually recreated to a surprising level of fidelity and uh, accuracy as well, too, that you can see things like, first thing I did when I loaded up Flight Sim was I went to Berlin, and I went to my street, and I saw that it was really awesome looking. Uh, I remember even posting that on the Slack at the time. Uh, uh, so I think it's, you know, people are realizing that there's a lot more to the game than just the hardcore simulation aspects. It's just a relaxing, uh, fun adventure, and it's just really pretty. At the same time as I say that, though, I think we saw this online. People, John can also comment on this, are probably not understanding uh, what Flight Sim is a little bit about. There's a lot of uh, negativity surrounding the game for some reason. Um, I think uh, it's you know looks really great on Xbox, and it doesn't make that much sense to zoom in <laughs> to the you know like tiny detail of the game in a city, for example, and look at the detail of a car, and then start saying things. <laughs> yeah. That's not what I, I think people genuinely don't understand the way that something like this has to be made, and that what what you're looking at there, it just comes down to like fundamentally like getting the level of detail people see in like a normal you know on the ground style game it's not possible to do that for the entire world like how would you even get that data like there's just no way to, to actually realistically do that right now it's not possible it has nothing to do with hardware platforms whatever it's literally just like this is this is where we're at in terms of what is feasible from like a manpower and just gathering data perspective and even if you had all that like the amount of memory required to make that work uh like no pc currently ex in existence could actually handle what people are asking for like it just it can't be done right now like fundamental uh but you know these games are focused on the large scale you're pulled out you're way above the terrain looking down uh and that's what they focused on that's the goal was to make that look good um and yeah you know flight simulators in general like they don't focus on the macro or the the micro sorry they focus on the macro not the micro so the small scale stuff on the ground you know that's ultimately not really feasible or all that important in general uh and it's the same with you know anything that does this like google earth vr uh which i was messing around with again yesterday actually it's the same same kind of thing it looks incredible from the sky but if you get right down up there you you start to understand how the data itself was was created and why it looks the way it does. So It's uh, very interesting how they did it. I talked about it in the initial video I did uh, back in August of last year, but you know they have these uh, large satellite images from like Bing Satellite, uh, I think, and they pop- That sounds funny though, yeah. Bing Satellite. <laughs> Bing Satellite, oh, that does sound so stupid actually. Um, and they stream these in through like the Azure Cloud stuff that Microsoft has running in the back end, and as they, stream this in, they have to, first of all, generate normal maps in real time for all this data, which don't, which doesn't exist, by the way. So they have to do normal map synthesis in real time on like CPU and GPU. They have to um, then you know, identify with AI, uh, essentially, which areas of this 2D texture need to be populated with real 3D models to extrapolate on that and make it look good. And they have to procedurally, all of a sudden, scatter all these things in real time as you're playing the game. It's not at all simple. It's it's really computationally intense, uh, and there's no way they could uh, like you know there's no reason for them to do it anyways. But there's no 
you know, no way you can go like to the ground and look at a car and be like, that car looks great. Right. There's no way to fetch that data currently and just make it automatic at such a high level of detail that would require the more traditional method of actually modeling out these objects. And you extrapolate that to the size of the planet, all the potential cars that exist, all the potential buildings and I mean, you know, if some, if, a, if an artist takes, you know, a couple of weeks to make a nice looking car model, th just think about what that means for building a game where the entire world is there, right? Like, it's just, you're talking about like, like a hundred years of, of work from like thousands of people and it's just... There's compromises and trades in every game, right? You know, it's why, it's, it's like, you know, Assassin's Creed Valhalla um, has a much larger map than say, I don't know, The Last of Us Part Two. So obviously, The Last of Us Part Two, they can afford to put more effort into a smaller level of, um, you know, a smaller scope of project. So what they're doing with Flight Simulator, it's it's just kind of, uh, I'm sort of laughing at it, but it is sort of just literally not seeing the wood for the trees, well, it's, well, or, or, or it's, trying to see the wood in the trees. In this it's, case, it's it's a perfect example of what we've been saying for a while now that games are are less and less constrained by hardware and more constrained by manpower and, and budget and time. Um, let's talk quickly about the VRR support, which uh, is obviously a lot of people quite interested in it because fundamentally what it does is to you have to have your xbox in 120 hertz mode and then it essentially unlocks the frame rate and flight simulator will try to run as fast as it can the idea being that a variable refresh rate on the monitor kind of like mask over to a certain extent the variation in frame rate that you're going to get um, so we put some footage into the video and obviously with vr the screen is able to track the um, the amount of times that the the GPU is driving a refresh on the display, so you get this little indicator in the corner telling you the free refresh rate, and it can be indicative of actual in-game frame rate, but it's not here. So, Alex. So essentially, in the initial video, uh, uh, when we were looking over London, it was really obvious that the refresh rate indicator was not. Uh, <laughs> uh, showing the actual performance of the game because it was like jittering all over the place and it felt just didn't look and feel good and that was showing like 80 to 90 hertz or even uh or even a little bit higher so we knew there that uh this low frame rate compensation tech was uh in play there essentially doubling or tripling the value you would see there on screen and uh that the real frame rate is much lower. Uh, but when we showed in that uh, uh, area of the video, we showed the Everest <clears throat> area, and it was showing a refresh rate of around 80 to 120, uh, depending on what was going on. Uh, there it is actually, in all likelihood, essentially, yes, it is. It's probably running uh, around like 50, 60 FPS, and sometimes 40 FPS or so. So it is definitely not running at 120 FPS. That is something that should not have necessarily entered the video. My bad. Uh, low frame rate compensation. <laughs> low frame rate compensation coming in there. But you know that you know we went afterwards uh, back to the game uh, on PC, put in as close to Xbox Series X settings as possible, and we were able to ver. I was able to verify at around 1440p internal resolution there that something like an RTX 3090 is going to get actually bound 100 to 120 FPS there. So that lines up actually a lot with uh, previous testing we've done between the console GPUs and uh, PC. You, you joked and said, my bad, but I think people need to understand that this, this world of VRR and the way that these displays work, it's still very much in its infancy and you know, sort of pulling the data. 
And in fact, all you had to go on was filmed footage that Rich did, right? You don't actually own a VRR display yourself, right? Well, I do, but it's it has a really poor it has a very poor VRR range, so I didn't want I didn't want to try. I, it, it's like looks like let me just say like I tried VRR just like very quickly on my screen and it was just like even worse than what Rich's footage looked like in terms of stutter because the VRR range is really poor. What I would like to see, I don't know, is that apparently the LG C1 and the new models support um, LFC down to like 20 hertz now, so like slightly better handling of that. So uh, I we I can't speak for that myself. I've only seen it on the LG CX. Which which sort of drops down. So I think forty hertz is the minimum for VRR. Yeah, I went back to look at this footage last night. I actually shot some one hundred and twenty frames per second uh, camera um, footage of the screen, and uh, it does. I, I do think that the minimum of those um, uh, refresh rate uh, readouts on the top right there. I think it is always half or a third. Um, Everest was running a maximum of 60 frames per second. I actually think it might even have a 60 frames per second cap and might always be in low frame rate compensation that's crazy. mode. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's just a, a, a sort of, here's the thing though. We've got no visibility into how VRR is actually working. All we have is that frequency indicator. And then you've got to kind of interpret it. And it might not even be accurate at all for all we know. You know, we just. <laughs> There, there's no way to capture footage with VRR and run it through a tool. It just, it's not and possible. What a shame. Yeah, I mean, I had to count 120 frames by eye to get some idea of what was going on there. It's an experience I'm not intending to, to repeat to do again. <laughs> yeah, it's not fun. Yeah. What is that actually with the CX occasionally where it shows like four to five hertz while running VRR mode? That's when you're in 4K 120 yep. mode. That's so weird. I don't know why, but that's just what it displays. Yeah, you have to multiply by 21.8 or something to, to get yeah. there. <laughs> it's, it's quite bizarre. <laughs> weird, a weird decision. I don't understand why they do it that way, but yeah. Mm -hmm. But you know, I, I kind of like the fact that it does have an unlock frame rate um, simply because you know Xboxes to come in the future will run it better, and it's just it's nice to have that option just sort of in your back pocket for a rainy day. I think for the Series S, it actually looks pretty good uh, based upon the footage yeah, you sent. Yeah, I agree. Uh, that looked pretty great. That's the, well, that's the crazy thing, right? Because Series S is running smoother than Series X, presumably because the streaming systems, the CPU, and the storage are under a lot less uh, stress, and they're fundamentally the same components as Series X. Okay, well, let's wrap that one up then and move on to the next topic. So I watched your video on this, John, The Ascent, uh, a remarkable project, uh, Unreal Engine 4, staff of 12 people, 12 core staff, um, staff members. Quite astonishing. What do you make of this game? So yeah, this was an interesting one. This was one of the first games that was showcased, I think, running on the new generation of consoles. I think it was last summer when they showed that uh, original showcase um, and it looked it looked great at the time. Um, we didn't know much about it then, other than that the frame rate was very unstable in that original footage, which is why I was very happy to see that when it actually finally arrived, it's a nice, smooth 60 FPS experience on the new consoles. Um, but so, you know, in the video, obviously, I talk about how it looks. It's a beautiful looking game, Unreal Engine 4. It runs very well. Uh, there's a huge density in the environments, just the, the complexity of the objects, the the lighting effects, every, everything is, is gorgeous. But I think what really uh, sort of 
left an impression the most and kind of surprised me the most is that this is the largest difference we've ever seen in terms of like loading time between last gen and the current gen systems. Uh, so I guess I should be upfront is that the game itself doesn't seem to be well optimized currently in terms of loading times. And it may be down to how they're loading the map. Maybe they just have a ton of static mesh data in there, which, you know, you look at it and you kind of think, yeah, the maps themselves are also relatively large, but whether you're playing on a PC or the Xbox Series X or the Xbox Series S, loading times generally come in between 15 to 30 seconds, right? Roughly. Sometimes actually maybe like maybe 15 to 35. That's the window. It's slightly variable depending on whether it's like starting a new game or loading an elevator, that kind of thing, right? So it's not super fast, but it's fast enough. And, you know, the consoles did very well there. But then we loaded it up on the last-gen machines with the mechanical hard drive, so it's Xbox One S and One X, and I was really surprised to see that the loading times are almost three minutes uh, when you start a game. So it's actually the longest I've ever tested. Uh, it's like five seconds longer than Ark Survival Evolved on the Switch. Um, so, you know, basically what that means is Series X and Series S are like 600% faster uh than the last gen machines so this is a case where the new hardware basically can sort of push through uh the slow loading of this game and deliver something that's perfectly fine you know it takes a little bit to get started but moving between areas is fast enough uh when you die the reloading is very very quick like it it plays perfectly fine but on the last gen machines it's it's really slow uh, and it, it just, to me, it's not, you know, it's a combination of, I, I'd imagine the CPU and the storage and maybe even just memory in general, uh, really contributing. Could also be the file structure. I mean, the thing about mechanical hard drives is that if you've got a lot of small files that you're accessing, you know, one at a time, the seek, the seek times moving the head around the hard drive is, uh, is quite intense. <laughs> Whereas there's there's no seek times with an SSD, and you're quite right, of course. You know the sheer transfer speeds will be faster. Plus, uh, decompression on the CPU will be a lot faster. I'm uh, yeah. This is this is extreme, isn't it? No, no. Uh, actually, I'm looking. I have the PC version installed here. I was just looking to see how long it takes to actually. I, okay, there's 184 files in there, so it's okay. not like tons of small are, files. Are they but... arranged as pack files, though? It could it could actually be that they're. Uh, like the their packs, but with tons of tiny yeah, files. Yeah, they are. Okay. Yep. So it could be that. It's several large packs. Okay. So it could be that. Also noted is that the uh, the PC and um, Xbox Series X and Series S versions have come in about sixteen to seventeen gigabytes. The last gen versions eleven gigabytes, uh, which is interesting. There there is some slight difference in texture quality, but it's very very subtle. So I'm almost wondering if there's something else with the way the data is compressed and stored and. Uh, I don't know, but either way, it's it was fascinating to see. So, if you're really curious and you want to see and understand why SSDs and these new CPUs and everything are so important, uh, this is definitely the game to showcase that. One thing I noticed, uh, or when uh, when John was uh, starting his review, he initially had the PC version to work with, and uh, we were really keen on showing that off and like with ray tracing, uh, and because you know Unreal Engine Four has really great ray tracing, I think, uh, and uh, the game will look better for it as John's video showed off really well. Uh, but the only problem was like the pre-release version uh, of the game in DX12 mode uh, has some pretty severe. Uh, 
stuttering, which which kind of sucks. And we've had this happen before. And they, they noted this in the patch, by the way. The, sorry, not the patch notes, but the, the review notes. They're basically like, yeah, the DX12 mode is um, not running well, so don't use it. Uh, but they say it will be fixed by or near launch. So I, you know, we'll need to test that. And that's the, again, when looking at this game, as I say in the video, this is the state of it during the review process. It's entirely possible that this stuff could be improved. Uh, and hopefully it is, but you know, small team and all that. So I think there's an interesting point within your video though, to, uh, John, which is um, the concept of scalability across the generations, where the, obviously, as you say, it was kind of um, shown as a next gen showcase, but it is on Xbox One S and it looks okay. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's definitely a game that looks good on both, but you know, I think for me it was what was interesting was comparing Xbox Series S to the Xbox One X because of how, you know, Series... So One X actually still has a higher rendering resolution, but that's the only advantage. In terms of performance, One X is 30 frames per second capped with more stuttering and very, very, very long loading times. Series S has fast loading times. Uh, the frame rate is pretty much a locked 60 save for like an occasional stutter, but it's it's almost perfect. Uh, so even though the resolution's slightly less, the experience just feels and looks better in action. It's much more playable. And for, you know, this is an interesting example of a cross-gen game where it really kind of shows why this new hardware is important at least. Yeah, check out the video. Um, and the game itself, it's cool. It's a cool action RPG, kind of top-down, isometric uh, shooting reminds me um actually of you know that we've seen games like this in the past it's a twin stick shooter i guess but with a bit more exploration and large open environments to explore so on a scale of zero to hunter the reckoning what are we talking about here john like how twit <laughs> i didn't even think about that yeah, you're right I, this does have some it's like a cyberpunk hunter the reckoning i thought about it when you were playing showing the video Dang it. Uh, you almost should have mentioned it but oh does this game have co-op do we know it does. So it has local co-op and online co-op. Oh, so, that's awesome. Um, which is really, really cool, mm. I would say. This is something I kind of, I had wanted to test, but because of the way accounts work and, you know, I wasn't able to try it. But I'm wondering if you play, if you're on a Series X or S and then you play with a friend that has like an Xbox One S or something, what does that mean for like getting into the game? Like, do you, does this... Does the series system owner just have to sit there at a screen like waiting? Mm -hmm. Like, I, I don't know. I'm very curious about that, actually. Uh, that's, that's a long a, time. It's actually a really interesting topic because there are a lot of games out there that do work within, you know, the Xbox or the PlayStation families, right? So, you know, obviously the, the sort of top tier example would be Fortnite or um, Warzone. But then you have these smaller games which may have, uh, you know, somewhat more variation yeah if, if we can maybe get another code of this or something at some point we when it's out uh this would be something to test actually because i don't think we've seen such a gap before in a game that's cross play in this way and theoretically that means also pc owners you could have a pc owner a series x owner or you know then if you're trying to play with uh an original xbox one um i mean yeah you might be just sitting at a screen for two and a half minutes just waiting for your buddy to get in there. And if you're transitioning between areas and doing missions, uh, it could get tedious, I'd imagine. So I'd be curious to see that. Okay, well, let's move on to the next topic. Guys, it's happening.
Immortal Shell. Oh. It's back. The Virtuous <laughs> Cycle uh, DLC is is becoming available for the game that's probably had more coverage on DF Direct Weekly than any other. <laughs> and uh, what can I say? This is astonishingly good news. I'm just looking at some coverage of the DLC. There's apparently a roguelike element being added to it, a new shell, and um, a new weapon by the looks of oh, it. Oh, wait. Hold, hold on here. Let's see here. Yeah, Tom. Tom. Yeah, it's me. <laughs> just letting you know. Mortal Shell is getting some DLC. You ready? I know. You got you got the frame rate. You got the tools up, right? All right. You got you got it installed still. All right. All right. Just making sure. Okay. We'll see you on direct when it hits. All right. See you. Bye bye. Okay. Uh, well, you know, to make sure it's going to be busy because there's going to be over a hundred new abilities to learn. Everyone Although. needs to be frame rate tested across all platforms. I mean, we're joking about it, but it is actually a really strong game mm -hmm. <laughs> actually yeah the game the itself game is, is quite good. good yeah we're only joking because it keeps showing up <laughs> and it's another title uh, where unreal engine 4 has basically empowered developers to to deliver you know really good game you know it's got ray tracing and dlss on pc we didn't cover that in df Eight weekly can we can we can add that to tom's docket just like the ascent too it's like you know that's why i really love these uh middleware uh, engines like uh unreal and unity because you can see a small team put out extremely you know high quality visuals that you know this that would have been impossible in like the 2008 or 2009 era yeah they're they're knocking on the door of triple a quality visuals with these games and the teams themselves are very small so it's it's super impressive to see okay well, let's move on. Interesting. An embargo has just lifted for a new AMD GPU, a Radeon RX 6600 XT. And uh, I've got a look at the core specification here. I'm just looking at the press deck. 32 CUs, uh, 2359 megahertz game clock, 32 megabytes of uh, Infinity Cache, uh, 8 gigs of GDDR6, 160 watt uh, power requirement. Um, Alex, what do you make of this? 9.7 teraflops, I reckon. I think it's uh, uh, it looks like a pretty good GPU at, uh, at the MSRP. I mean, I always do kind of wish this uh, most recent generation of graphics cards from AMD and NVIDIA was a little bit cheaper, just like a tiny bit cheaper. But I think it hits a sweet spot in terms of specs. I do think this has eight gigabytes uh, of you know VRAM frame buffer. I think that's proper for its actual power level. So it's not weirdly unbalanced like the uh, RTX 3060, which I presume shortly before release, there was a panic attack at NVIDIA and they doubled the amount of RAM on it or something like that. Uh, <laughs> that's what I assume what it was because they tried to launch a six gigabyte GPU at that price range. Uh, that would have not flown. Um, so no, that definitely would have not. I definitely think this looks like very balanced. Uh, the only problem I have with it is a little bit like I have with the entire AMD offering is that I, I'm, I'm really big into ray tracing and I'm really about uh, long-term scaling in some aspects. And I think Rich is gonna, uh, has an opinion on this too, but I think the DLSS offers such a, a boon to getting an RTX GPU that is just not found there on the AMD side. Um, I think this is gonna be a really strong GPU. Uh... MSRP 349, I think. Uh, so it's slightly more expensive than the 3060, but you know, AMD have supplied some bar charts here. I'm looking at on my second monitor, where essentially it does look at least 15% faster than the 3060. Um, but yeah, I, I do see what you mean, Alex, because um, I've been doing some laptop testing with a laptop 3070. I've not actually benchmarked it in relation to a. Um, 
uh, you know, into, into, into a desktop part. Yeah, but it is with DLSS doing some crazy things I just did not expect. So, you know, obviously we have console equivalent settings for titles like Control, um, titles like Metro Exodus Enhanced Edition, and uh, Doom Eternal. And with DLSS, you know, this, this level of GPU performance is up there and easily exceeding what the consoles are doing on the same titles. And I think this is um, because of two aspects. Number one, DLSS does provide um, a big accelerant. I mean, if you're like 20, 30% faster, that's not a big deal when you're running at 100 frames per second, but it is a big deal if you're like, you know, at 50 frames per second, you know, or 45 frames per second, it's getting you up to 60. Um, that's the first component. The second component is ray tracing, because um, I would venture to suggest uh, based on your tests so far, Alex, that um, a 3060 does not have the rasterization power of um, PlayStation 5 or Xbox Series X. But when you're looking at um, games that are using raid facing, the NVIDIA uh, silicon is a lot more capable than the RT hardware in the consoles. And effectively, it's tipping the balance. So, you know, it's adding the performance back in, and then you accelerate that with DLSS. So, yeah, I guess the only thing that um, that sort of counts against it is the fact that not every title has DLSS. And, you know, if a, if a, if a game has an AMD sponsorship, like uh, Resident Evil Village, then it will never have DLSS, uh, this, which is a shame. And it's but, you know, it is the nature of proprietary technology, which is why we've been kind of advocating quite some time that DLSS should migrate into a direct ML open format for all hardware. So yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I think this is going to be a really good GPU, you know, 9.7 teraflops of compute. You know, it's going to be up there in rasterization terms with the consoles. It's got the infinity cache. It's got a really good amount of memory for that particular price point. Um, and, you know, it's going to do really well in benchmarks, I suggest. Um, but the question is really, you know, the experience gets mocked a lot. But, you know, everything I'm learning from using this laptop 3070 is that if you don't whack everything up to ultra, which you're unlikely to do on a mid-range, lower-end GPU anyway, then there's some big wins to be had here. And, um, you know, AMD is behind on the machine learning side of things. The rate facing performance isn't quite there. I mean, I'm looking at the press deck and the rate facing benchmarks. It's, you know, it's it's not stuff like control. It's stuff like um, Godfall. Yeah, which doesn't really even have ray tracing, honestly. Like, that, that barely counts. But, right, yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that is, I suppose, the, the success level of the 3060 class hardware is that um, it is a lower end, cheaper part, but ray tracing is viable. And I wonder whether it will be on the 6600 XT. If we talk about scalability versus the 6700 and higher, probably not. So, you know, it's nothing new really. It's exactly what we said about every RDNA2 GPU. I think from my perspective, the question is, because we know how long a GPU architecture takes to create, we know from RDNA 1 that ray tracing simply wasn't on the table. RDNA 2 seems to be like a tentative introduction. So where is AMD going to go next with RDNA 3? Do they double down on ray tracing? Or are they still in the same mindset that they would have been in in you know 
years ago, 2018, is it a priority for them? Also machine learning as well. Yeah, I think, uh, I think they're going to get um, some feedback from developers uh, regarding the first contact that has existed uh, due to the consoles, uh, working with RDNA2 style ray tracing there. And I think they are actually going to eventually, uh, maybe not completely for the next generation, because you know GPU hardware iteration does take some time. Um, so I do definitely think they're going to add in more hardware acceleration over time into their GPUs because you know the DXR model allows it really easily uh, in terms of adding in more acceleration. I think one of the things they may actually end up doing would be adding in um, like hardware ray binning and ray sorting, which the GPUs currently do not do, uh, and not a lot of GPUs actually do that. I don't even think Appear does that. So that's like I think they will end up doing it. It's just a matter of I don't know if it'll be the next gen or the one thereafter. Mr. Multisystem, a console-like design for the Mr. Project. John, what's this all about? Yeah, so Neil from the Retro Man Cave, uh, which is another great YouTube channel, by the way. He's a very, ni very nice what an gentleman. Amazing <laughs> Sorry, channel, the, the Retro Man uh, what Cave. What a name. <laughs> Because uh, Audi has his retro grief cave. Yeah, this is the man cave, right? Well, no, this this is uh, another English bloke who's uh, started up. Uh, he actually has a fantastic place now. It's almost like an old computer museum. I hope to visit that someday. But he worked with another engineer to essentially take, create like a new, you could almost say like add-on board or motherboard kind of for the DE10 nano board that Mister is derived from. The idea here is that essentially, you know, if you've seen the Mister, most of the cases they're very nice, but it's just like a little block that's the size of the the, the main board, and you stack, you know, like the I/O board and other add-ons on it. You got USB ports and connections like 360 degrees around it. Um, it's not really that great to use as far as like a console kind of design would be, if you know what I mean. Where it's just got ports everywhere. It's it does, doesn't sit great. This, however. Almost looks like it's in a mini ITX form factor. It's almost like the shape of like a PC engine in a way. So it has all the ports you need, four USB up front. It's got a hidden port where you can actually slot in like additional controller ports inside. You know, it has more USBs hidden. And if you pull off that thing, you can either just use the USB or literally it looks like you can slot in uh, new controller ports uh, for using like, you know, uh, different, different pinouts for some old game controllers that you want to pair with it. Um, it's got, you know, uh, a SCART output directly on the back. So you can just plug the SCART right into your analog TV in addition to the digital outputs. You know, it's got the uh, the integrated 120 M megabytes of uh, SD RAM, which is even further upgradable. And this is necessary for a lot of the higher end cores. It actually has a real power switch which Mr. by itself does not. You actually have to buy like an AC adapter and get like an inline power switch on it. Um, stuff like that. So basically the idea is to take the Mr. concept and turn it into a nice looking machine that you can sit on a shelf and all the ports you need are right up front, all the outputs on the back. It's very console-like, uh, which is kind of like a really good idea for the Mr. project as a whole, I feel. Uh, just making this really nice box just for that. So... You know, my kind of a small thing, I guess, but for me, I thought it was really appealing looking and I'm really interested to kind of like keep an eye on this. Let's sort of go back to brass tacks here. It is an FPGA based system that now allows for super accurate emulation of retro systems, right? So, but it does have a very um, arduous for some people setup cost, right? Does this make it easier? Yes, that's the idea here. If you get one of these kind of things, 
um, like the whole configuration and working with it looks simpler. I mean, I guess you still have to do the SD card stuff, which is not difficult, but, and by the way, that's another thing. The SD card slot is right on the front there in an easily accessible spot, which was always a trouble because on some of the other cases you put the SD card in, but because of the way it's put into the case, sometimes you actually miss the slot and the SD card falls inside of the case. Then you got to take it out, shake it around and get it to fall <laughs> out. And it's, it's a pain. So are these SD cards, <laughs> that's for inserting the core, right? The, yeah. yeah. So basically, yes, you, and there's ways to get these cores. There's literally like script that you just run from the main menu and it'll download everything you need to run the cores. But you know, all sorts of consoles. It, uh, it's it's in this mini ITX form because you could even put it, you, you could actually use this new board. If you didn't want to use their case, you could put it into a mini ITX compatible case. And because this actually has cores for like actual PCs and old micros, even something like there's a 486 core now, right? So it simulates a real 486 PC. So you could put this in a small case and bam, you actually have like a hardware accurate 486 now. Does it also have like 486 support for like, could you also like attach to like a PCI interface and like drop real hardware that was from a 486? That would be interesting. I'm not sure if that's actually possible yet, but that is something that, that, that would, would be like a dream. Like That'd be see. really cool. Yeah, absolutely. And there's enough add-on ports on these things where I feel like that, that should be feasible maybe. I don't know. I'd be curious to see, but Either way, this this whole project and this kind of stuff, I mean, it's all about the community finding ways to uh, essentially keep old hardware alive in as accurate a form as possible, allowing it to work with both digital and analog displays. So, um, Alex, the DLSS SDK has been released. This actually happened a week or two ago. Mm -hmm. We've not really talked about it yet, but um, I think now we've got some idea of the implications of this. So essentially this allows anybody to integrate D, um, DLSS into their own projects. So what kind of movement have we been seeing with it? So, I mean, I've already talked with other devs and they've um, not just uh, the stuff you see on Twitter, but people are pretty happy that this actually happened because the process of initially uh, getting DLSS into your game essentially required like NVIDIA approval. And there was like a waiting process and yeah, there was like a secret GitHub and all these things. It's just like, you know, it, they, I, I presume the reason why NVIDIA did that initially was because they wanted DLSS to look good out of the gate and have uh, implementations that were essentially curated uh, so that people would see DLSS uh, technology maybe in its best light. Uh, but now, you know, if people have seen it, they know what to expect from the technology. It's out there. Um, it's not open source in the aspect that you can uh, like look inside and change the machine learning values or the, the inference weights of the model or something like that. But you have essentially all the things in this SDK to allow you to plug in directly into your engine where it needs to be at a variety of different parts of the pipeline. Maybe you can do it a little bit later, a little bit earlier. Um, and debugging tools to get a, a good sense of why DLSS does not look the way it does or doesn't look as good as it maybe does. And as a part of this, actually, um, that I think is really interesting is there was a GDC presentation by NVIDIA covering DLSS integrations as they announced the DLSS SDK coming out. And they, um, this presentation was really neat because they showed off essentially that, yes, they understand that some users are not happy with certain <laughs> integrations of DLSS for a variety of reasons. And they kind of put out like a bulletin point message for devs to things to look out for while integrating DLSS, which I really liked seeing in this presentation. So I think in the future, we're gonna see some better DLSS integrations because NVIDIA is pushing devs to do, make it better. 
Another part of this is that uh, as part of DLSS SDK, you as a user can also just download the, um, the SDK yourself and uh, take the DLL from that, the latest DLSS developer DLL, and put it into any DLSS 2.1 game, I'm pretty sure, and you'll have access to a, a DLSS SDK on-screen UI where you can turn on and off aspects of DLSS, you can open up debug menus, and you can even um, make DLSS look better, as I talked about in the video uh, describing injecting Rainbow Six's DLSS DLL into older DLSS 2.1 games or 2.2 games, and uh, you can make games look better. So uh, I, hope, I hope this means more DLSS integration over time, uh, but the end goal for us is, like you said earlier, Rich, let's hope NVIDIA turn this into a direct ML model uh, where even Radeon GPUs can use it, even Intel GPUs can use it. Sure, it'll maybe be slower there due to the, you know, they don't have this matrix math uh, acceleration to the same degree, but that's what I really want to see happen with DLSS. Exactly what happened with ray tracing. NVIDIA opened it up to Pascal GPUs. It was not exactly performant, but at least you got a taste of what it could do. And I think it could actually be in NVIDIA's favor to open it up because, um, you know, people could see that the quality is actually really good. And if they fancy, you know, okay, so I want this to be faster, maybe I'll get an NVIDIA GPU. I mean, that's probably not <laughs> you know, the intended use case, but it certainly would have an impact, I think. But yeah, interesting stuff, yeah. Um, okay, well, let's uh, tie a bow on that and move on. Oculus Touch, apparently the rings are cracking. And um, see, you've added this to the to the docket, John. Why don't you tell us a bit more about it? Yesterday, I was playing with the Rift, and I noticed that this part here was coming, the internal part of the ring, it started to come disconnected uh, from the inside. And I was like, well, that's weird. Trying to put it back, the tension makes it so it's very difficult to do that. It still functions. But I was comparing the two, and I also noticed that here at the edge, there's also a little crack forming here. Uh, so I look online and I see there are tons and tons of images of people with cracked rings on their Oculus controllers. Some of them literally just clean breaks. Uh, it seems like these these second-gen touch controllers have a lot of issues with that, uh, from best I can tell. And I suspect it's down to like the, the pressure on this ring itself, like the plastic. It's very tight. Uh, it doesn't seem to impact the actual functionality because it's not the plastic that, you know performs the magic of course but uh i'm pretty disappointed by this i mean i do use my rift off and on still a lot actually yeah, I, I enjoy it and the controllers when i'm not using them just safely sat on a shelf and then when i use them i've never really jostled them or done anything that would have that i feel would have caused this so i'm a little bit surprised and disappointed to see this as an issue so i just kind of wanted to flag that here uh as something that um you know, in hopes that the word gets out there further and maybe we get an understanding or an answer as to what's going on. Uh, because that, that that's really, it's a bummer. I always do dislike plastic degradation uh, on, you know, any sort of controller output. One time I remember contacting you, John, after I hadn't used my PS4 controller for a while. And I was like, why is it all weird and gummy and like feels like it, it looked broken? Like, what is this about? Nintendo and Sony analog sticks in particular do that. I found... From lots of experience, uh, not in 64, so GameCube and Wii stuff, as well as all PlayStation generations, uh, the analog sticks get a very weird and goopy feeling when they've sat out for a long time. Uh, versus Xbox, where instead of getting gooey, they just get really dry. 
which is preferable to be honest. But you know, whatever material they used to make these sticks from, and maybe it's the interaction with the oils from your hands as well. Like, uh, I mean, I don't have it that often with a lot of controllers here, but a couple, of, especially like DualShock threes and a couple of GameCube controllers, it's pretty bad. <laughs> so uh, it's it's a it's an annoying thing for sure. So I've got two Oculus Quests. I've got the first one and the second one. Um, I have to admit, the first one, I loved it. There was a lot of magic to it. The second one, I've not really touched as much. And um, the reason why is the Facebook integration. It's just such a massive turnoff to, to actually integrate um, virtual reality with a social media network. And it's not being done for the best of reasons. And then this week, there's been reports that the foam on the on the latest VR headset has been causing irritation to skin. It's just, um, it's you know, it's, it's sort of like not great. And it's a shame because the Quest is such an awesome VR platform. And, um, you know, the, the sheen is coming off it. And, you know, I was kind of ambivalent i had no real feelings one way or the other about the facebook connection um when when it first happened but it just seems to be kind of acute you know accumulating bad news which is making me feel bad about it and the other thing about it is that you know i saw some of the usage stats for vr the quest is by far the most um adopted vr platform at this moment and um i'm, I'm a bit concerned i've got to admit now one thing I think uh, that is kind of heartening is that uh, Sony is doing PSVR 2 for the PlayStation 5. Uh, we've seen some leaked specs and it looks good. We've seen some other specs which haven't been leaked, which make it look even better. So, um, yeah, hopefully that, you know, VR will be able to expand. There will be more choice in the headset arena. Um, and uh, also, I'm quite looking forward to seeing what this new Sony controller is about. But um, what's that, what do you think is actually causing these cracked rings? Is it just the glue coming apart? or It might just be the, I don't know, like the inherent pressure, like in this like ring design. I don't know. Something with, uh, it's just exerting this like pressure on it the entire time. So it's actually the plastic that's come away. It's not like a glued joint that's come loose. Well, in the first case, yeah, it just kind of, it looks like the plastic just came away, but in the other one where it's cracked here, it's, it's actually like an actual crack. Like the plastic just snapped right there. Like it's still, the controller's still fine. It's still functional, uh, but you can see like the, it just split. Do you think it happens from depressing the thumb down like really hard or something like that? Uh, no, I, I really don't think so. There's no connection to that there. Um, I don't know. It's uh, it's it's strange. A little disappointing. I might have to see if I can get that serviced or something. But um, I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully this is something they're aware of and correcting going forward. So we're going to move on to a digital foundry content discussion now. And I guess the big news is that um, we've got a new DF Retro episode, and the old one is now available for everyone to view on YouTube. So John, walk us through this. We had the PlayStation one last month. This time it's a uh, Super Star Wars. So uh, we released that to patrons already and it's coming out or is already out actually by the time you see this. Uh, and yeah, we kind of go through almost like the history of Star Wars games, you could almost say. Like we cover a lot of ground. It's not just the Super Star Wars trilogy. It's it's ultimately everything that led up to them, uh, why and how they were created. And then we kind of go through them all to see if they still stand the test of time. In some ways they do, in some ways they don't. 
but there's a lot of interesting info there, and I think we really enjoyed making that. But then the new episode, which might not be live, when you, it might be a day or two behind uh, due to other things. We'll see. Uh, but this one is on the series F-Zero from Nintendo. So um, this is what I talked about last week in regards to doing the Unreal integration for like backgrounds and such uh, and various other things. But yeah, so this, um, we decided to cover the entire series as well as everything around it, you know, from the animation, uh, the various homebrew efforts, uh, things like that, ports to other weird machines that you might not expect. Uh, and just looking closely at each installment in the series because it's a very digital foundry kind of game in the sense that literally every single installment in the F-Zero series is 60 frames per second. It's a series that never, ever, ever wavered from that target, no matter the platform. And I respect it a lot for that. Yeah, that's way good. <laughs> so yeah. we kind of, you know, we kind of lament the fact that Nintendo's moved away from racing games like F-Zero, Wave Race, even like 1080 and all that. They've just left that all behind. And clearly the only racing they care about is Mario and his karts. Uh, which those are those are great games, but it's been a while since we've had a new one of those too. It's so. been like eight years, I think, since the last Mario it's, Kart. It's, right? it's a shame. Uh, it's a shame. Crazy. But yeah, yeah I mean, it's uh, it's a great, especially F Zero GX is still my favorite. That's the one that was developed primarily by Sega, uh, with Nintendo as a partner, and it's just a fantastic fusion of talent. What a what an amazing game that is. There's also some uh, satellite-based content in there, right? Oh, that's important. Yes, yeah, so that's right. For the uh, the Super NES, Super no Super Famicom, actually, they had the Satellaview in Japan, which was the satellite broadcast system. And one of the things they would do is sort of like you'd have the game, uh, and then they would broadcast like live announcers and and actual music alongside the game play. And they had like different tournaments and stuff running, and they had BS as they call it. Daryl Gumpery, Night League! Round 1! BS, F-Zero Grand Prix and <laughs> Grand Prix 2 BS. for broadcast satellite. Course, but yeah, yeah it sounds a little silly. There's actually a, a Japanese uh, preservationist, Kukunkun, <laughs> as he goes by, who archived uh, all of the original broadcasts for this on VHS tape. So... It's the first time I've actually had a chance to hear those original broadcasts as they were presented back in the day. And it really gives us some insight into what the experience was like. And it's kind of crazy because you just, it's all like you're playing on a Super Famicom, but you've got, you know, full announcers announcing the courses and, you know, talking about the vehicles. And then you get into the race and sometimes they're playing remixes of F-Zero music, but other times you're listening to like Van Halen or something. <laughs> I mean, that, that does make sense and, though, right? <laughs> musically yeah it's it's wild though to see that 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 was on the super famicom uh and it's just a it's a cool thing and yeah i'm happy to you know be able to sh showcase some of that stuff in this video as well just uh to kind of give people what experience was like we also of course look at the n64's uh 64dd uh f0x expansion pack which has the whole track editor with like a really nice uh, sort of setup. You can basically make any track you want in the game using lots and lots of parts to assemble it. And then you can race it and save these out into your own custom cups uh, and stuff like that. So how did you get the 64 DD footage exactly? So that's an interesting one. That's one I do not own because it's just ridiculously expensive and also difficult to get a hold of. And honestly, probably not worth it for that. But some, some, uh, some folks have actually gone and 
converted the 64DD games into a cartridge format that you can use in like an EverDrive, which in this case, I think the game itself was 64 megabytes, which is just the size of the largest N64 carts, which were obviously expensive to manufacture at the time. Um, but yeah, it includes two new cups as well, stereo music instead of mono, uh, things like that. So, you know, it's cool. It's cool to finally be able to play that and take a look at it. Yeah, good stuff. But you've also got a new DF RetroPlay coming up that's going to be supporter only for a little while before it goes live. So what did you do there? So um, because we did F-Zero, we decided, hey, we should look at other futuristic racing games on N64, both to look at the games themselves, but also we wanted to further show off the features of the N64 digital mod, uh, which comes to us from the PS1 digital and DC digital uh, team, now Pixel FX as they're known now. And uh, yeah, it looks super sharp. We played Extreme G, Wipeout 64, and uh, Arrow Gauge, uh, wow. which people may not have heard of Arrow Gauge, but it's a pretty cool looking game, actually. Is it also 60? It is not. None of those games are 60. You got to understand, F-Zero XP in 60 frames per second was such a rare thing for N64. I believe even if you count the very few 2D games, there, there's possibly less than 10 games that are 60 frames per second on N64. Whereas like on PlayStation and Saturn, it's like it, approaching like 200 if you count 2D games as well. But there's plenty of 3D games that are 60 as well. But yeah, the N64 was not a machine for high frame rates. So just to clarify that mod you were talking about, it essentially adds an HDMI output to the N64. So it's two things. Yes, you get the HDMI output with like perfect, super high quality scaling at all sorts of different factors, really high end scan lines and lots of other features in there. But it also upgrades the analog output because the analog output normally only supports up to S video on the N64 or in power regions, composite video is the max you can get. Uh, this adds RGB analog output to it and the option to toggle the de-blur, which is that uh, one pass of the... Uh, it's like this blur filter that they applied by default on N64 games. And I, I it's pretty ugly. I, I'm not sure I understand the reason why it was there uh, in the first place. Trying to probably smooth out artifacts, but it's not great. You can turn it off now. So this mod is is fantastic in that sense. You get both upgraded analog and full digital video output was there was dithering very common even on the n64 yeah there's dithering for sure between composite video and that extra blur it probably did kind of eliminate it but in the end what you got on n64 was like a super blurry image and that's what people remember it looking like but in reality when you play it with this with the right setup uh n64 is no longer blurry if you support the DF supporter program, uh, the Retro Tier has all of that content. So do check that out. Other stuff that's going on, um, premium level, we do a ton of early access stuff. We do a ton of um, giving away uh, bonus material. I mean, for Flight Simulator, we had like 16 minutes of VRR off-screen footage that you could check out. I think only maybe two minutes of it made it into the full edit, simply because there wasn't that much more to discuss. Uh, in terms of the overall context of the game. But, you know, that particular mode did get a great deal of attention. A lot of people were curious about it. And, you know, we were able to just supply everything that we did there. And, uh, yeah, lots more stuff happening there. So I do highly recommend checking that out. So let's move on to supporter Q&A. 
Okay, so the first question from Oliver McKenzie. Again, prolific question asker here. Um, are there any holy grails from online CG rendering that you're still waiting to be implemented in games? Personally, I'm still a bit disappointed with real-time fabric rendering relative to CG, as well as, as well as the state of water physics simulation. I think one of the things that I, I think uh, skeletal deformation with real uh, hard surface um, physics is one thing that we're still missing in games. So games have gotten, like if you look at Kratos in the most recent God of War, it's one of the games that shows it off well, but they try and do like the, the muscular structure on him and they have the proper, so like the skin bends really well. And the most recent Spider-Man, they used some machine learning based tech to make so that his stretchy suit going over him doesn't like overextend and create weird bulges on his geometry. They're starting to get better with that. But one thing game developers still don't do well, and it's going to probably take a while because on offline, it's still expensive, is like actual like armor bits and things that are hard on a model should not be bending with the model itself too. You always see it in games when people have like uh, metallic armor, I think you could probably even see it in the most recent Demon Souls that like the, the armor itself is actually bending, which is not the way these things should look. So that's one thing from offline that I really hope uh, kind of comes into game at some point. I mean, that's a really good one, actually. I agree with that. But kind of as Oliver says, I'd like to see more like physics simulation present in games, whether it's water, whether it's just as simple as, uh, you know, walking through foliage. Like right now, a lot of, you know, you walk through grass and they sort of move the the model or texture around to simulate that but getting more like really high quality collision on things that you bump into would be cool uh but also expensive and of course you know water wind smoke simulation all of this stuff we're, we're seeing some inroads into this you know, some tech demo stuff as well but it's it's still very expensive to render and i would really like to i feel like that's the kind of thing that would make the world feel so much more like alive and lived in you know as well as like you know imagine um you know if you could leave footprints which we we've seen in games you know if you like maybe modify the mesh as you leave the footprints and then water runs down and actually pools properly in them and stuff like that the thing is there's sort of infinite directions that graphics i know that's the problem really <laughs> yeah um, there's actually a, a question further on down from jordan hj that's quite similar to this gaming gaming is so focused on refresh rates resolution and ray tracing that some of the really exciting things like physics and ai are getting left to the side i can't remember something exciting happening in game physics since those physics cards do you think these kinds of techniques about the way game worlds feel rather than look will ever start to be at the forefront again this is specifically a casualty of the ps4 and xbox one era uh, games were driven by console development those consoles have very weak cpus it's no secret um you know something had to give and i think that these sorts of complex interactions just weren't the focus because they didn't have the resources to spare for it. Um, so I'm hopeful that with, you know, the way things are looking, we might see more of this. John said exactly what I was going to say. Um, I think now with the newer consoles that are out, they have really confident GPUs and really competent CPUs. And, um, you know, I think if we took a, if we took like a God of War like game from last gen and just made it have more physical interactions, and have the same level of graphical quality, I think I'd be really happy with that. Um, I think you guys would be too. I mean, that game already looks really great, but imagine if like Kratos hits and like 
the ground and the ground like like bursts into like you know all these little particle effects and the ground is actually like deforming underneath them and like the snow starts to roll and things like that trees like you know you're swinging your axe around you hit a tree depend it varies depending on the size of the tree some small trees he just chops right through they break apart others like you actually collide with it and it leaves like an actual like sort of dent in the tree from your axe you know stuff like that would would really be cool i think or chipping the stones if you slam against a stone you know just that kind of surface-based stuff. So one thing to, to talk about with the uh, physics cards, just going back in the day, I've, I wanted to I want to get some more research into these because I want to eventually do a video on them. Uh, that's like totally open-ended when on Earth that could ever happen, by the way, so don't quote me there. Um, but uh, I think they actually were doing uh, real world space physical calculations. So they are the physics cards, uh, they're different than like GPU physics we see in games today, where GPU physics only exists on the GPU and they're like, uh, you know, um, colliding things against the G buffer. Or, or, or the depth buffer, I mean, sorry. Uh, and so they can be ephemeral and they can disappear when you don't look at them and things like that. I think actually the physics cards back in the day or uh, GPU physics from NVIDIA was actually doing things that would stay on screen if you knew, even if you weren't looking at it. So they were very specific. And that's maybe one of the reasons why they were so expensive back in the day. And you know, back then there wasn't too much insight as to what was going on behind the scene. But I want to take a look into them at some point. Cover cell factor. It's actually interesting, Alex. It feels like during that era, even when we moved away from the dedicated cards, a lot of PC versions would receive specific physics implementations. Like I think Mirror's Edge is still one of my favorites where, you know, it already looked amazing on the consoles. PC version, you could have just put it at 60 FPS, bump it up, and that would have been fine. But they actually went the extra mile and implemented a ton of physics into it, uh, which still look awesome. And, you know, you saw this in a lot of games back then, and then it feels like with this new generation, that just kind of went away. It is a bit of a shame. I mean, we saw, like, Mafia 2 also had a really amazing one that's gone, by the way, from the remaster. Take look at that. Uh, uh, and the last game that I think we really saw anything happening on this front was Batman Arkham Knight, where the turbulence physics particles or any other thing. Maybe there's some other things in the game, I just can't remember. But you know, that's like a real fluid sim on the GPU there. Uh, and it looks incredible, I think. And uh, the only thing we've really seen recently with that is uh, uh, Returnal has uh, some fluid sims uh, going on there. Uh, so I don't know, maybe we'll see more physic or more agnostic approaches coming with the next generation of uh, or current gen it's not hard to be disappointed when you look back at crisis again from 2007 and you realize that the interactions that that game offers like nobody else is doing this uh and that was so many years ago now and it just it's it's really it's a shame as an example of that just like so in a game usually when you like throw a grenade and the, the smoke comes up it's just like a static effect but in crisis if you throw a grenade and then you throw another grenade the smoke from the initial grenade is actually blasted out of the way uh, it's actually a physicalized smoke what <laughs> i mean that's why you had all those barrel videos back in the day from crisis yeah. people stacking up because the explosions were physicalized in a way that uh they aren't really today not in the same way uh, and that's why, you know, ba Battlefield was around. Battlefield was, all, oh, yeah, destruction. But they were pretty much just swapping in models for the most part, right? 
Like, so you didn't, you weren't really destroying anything in that same way. It didn't feel, didn't have that physicalized feeling of crisis. We did have uh, some really nice physics effects and control, but it just seemed to completely tank the frame rate on the last <laughs> no, well, console. There you go. That's actually, that's a great example. You're right. Control did have some great physics and you see right there why the last gen CPUs were such an issue because <laughs> it had serious problems on those consoles. <laughs> so... But yeah, this is it's it's an interesting point because, um, you know, it's similar to the way that people don't sort of blink twice at the fact that you don't see yourself reflected in mirrors in games anymore. Similar to the sort of static way that game environments have evolved due to the nature of the last gen consoles, you know, control a lot of people probably don't even notice what's going on with the physics. Because you know you're conditioned by so many games that have static environments, and the mirror thing is funny too. Even though they were simplistic in comparison, but old games used to have mirrors, and then it feels like with the rise of uh, SSR and other techniques, they just like you know what we can't do that anymore. We're not going to bother. And I, I I actually understand because with the complexity of modern rendering, mirrors are a much more difficult problem to solve. But uh, it still feels like a step down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it is, you know, when a game like Hitman 2 or 3 comes along where the mirrors do actually work, it's yes. like, whoa, it feels <laughs> this is like, revelation, this actually, is like yeah. next level stuff. <laughs> when in actual fact, it's a mirror that's working correctly. <laughs> okay, uh, let's move on. Um, next question, Serious Dan. In previous generations, there's been a tipping point where PC hardware outclasses console hardware to the point that it could offer gaming gaming experiences that were simply impossible anywhere else. We didn't really see it last generation. Mm -hmm. However, now that RT is the hot topic, could it happen again? Will the still very impressive RT performance of the consoles be left in the dust once AMD and NVIDIA start to hit their stride with hardware RT? Alex? I think uh, this person may have a little bit limited scope at what PC hardware and games exist out there. So like the entire RTS or real-time sim genre, uh, any sim genre doesn't exist on console hardware, whether it's because of, uh, you know, the input capabilities that consoles offer or because it's uh, memory or CPU intensive in a way that the consoles can't do. So it was still actually there. Uh, last generation on PC, it just wasn't necessarily in the go-to AAA genres that you're used to seeing. Uh, that's one thing difference. I'll say. Um, that's the difference. But yeah, I, I really like the way you're uh, putting this uh, serious, Dan. Uh, I would really like to see a game ship with, uh, you know, like extra RT features that are only there on uh, on PC. I think we're already seeing that as well. Like if you just look at Control, the, co- the console version of Control only has what, rate ray trace reflections. But on PC, you're getting you know, the ray trace contact shadows uh, and a ray traced uh, local diffuse GI. I think that's all awesome stuff. Um, so I hope we see more of that, yeah. You're right, that stuff's great, but we kind of reached this point where most development is now centered around multi-platform just due to the cost structure. And we've kind of lost uh, there, there's not that many big PC games that are trying to push the medium forward necessarily that are just for PC, right? Like we just mentioned Crisis and like a Crisis-like production almost couldn't exist today where they make a game like that specifically targeting high-end PCs only. Uh, it just doesn't make sense money-wise to do that, I guess. Uh, but that's the stuff that's really missing. Like when you look at the late 90s, early 2000s, the defining years of high-end PC gaming, I would say. Uh, so many genres and, and types of games and classics we love uh, came to be during that era, and they couldn't really have existed on consoles at the time. And there's just not there's not that much happening in that space. I mean, 
Obviously, you get something like uh, Star Citizen, which is still, you know, a ways out. That that feels like that was built with that idea in mind, but obviously it's one of many. And, you know, RTS games, you're right, strategy stuff, but that pushes things in a different way, as it always has, right? So that conti- that actually kind of, that's funny, that kind of continued, right? Like RTS stuff and strategy in general kind of continued the cycle, just as they always did in the PC space, because they just didn't make sense on a console by and large. But a lot of other genres kind of, it's like, well, everything's multi-platform now. It's always a little bit of a shame, and I'm always, I'm slightly surprised occasionally that the hardware vendors don't have their own uh, publishing arm, like Nvidia, AMD, or Intel. ATI used to. Yeah, Bubsy. They, they did the, the Super <laughs> Bubsy port, developed in house. You know, uh, actually, no. You saw like Quake Two RTX from Nvidia's Lightspeed Studios. I would like to see both of them do more stuff, whether it's like just a remake thing like that, or like actual fun new games that really like showcase the PC. Uh, I think that would be super cool to see. And I feel like that actually would help push PC gaming forward. You know, not that it's not already doing awesome, but, um, you know, some killer apps just for the PC that really push the hardware. It might be the case that it's simply that uh, AMD slash NVIDIA are essentially funding some PC development. You know, Control is a very, very budget-orientated game. You know, it's it's... Triple A production values, but you know it was made to a specific budget. Another game that springs to mind would be Hellblade, um, and it's these kind of projects where you know Nvidia or AMD can step in and actually provide um, engineering support and possibly funding to make this stuff happen. And when you see what Control is doing, then you know it elevates it into a kind of must-play experience on PC. I mean, I was looking at Control again on the gaming laptop. And with DLSS, you can enable all of those features. And it is radically transforming the game, even compared to the Ultimate Edition on console, you know, which does get um, what you might call a, a sampling, you know, the, prob- probably the biggest bang for the buck feature in terms of ray tracing with the reflections. But, you know, PC just, just offers so much more. So, yeah, interesting stuff there. Um, I will. I do really hope to see uh, that scalability on the PC side, and I think the thing that excites me about it is, you know, when you look at what um, uh, Remedy and um, uh, 4A Games and id Software, they they see the hardware, they recognise what it can do, and they want to do great things with it. So possibly we will see those those strides. Uh, okay, well let's move on to the next question. I think we've answered this one before, but we can probably uh, cover it again uh, from Goro Majima. During this cross-gen period, we are thankfully actually seeing the majority of devs target 60 FPS on console or at least adding a 60 FPS mode. As soon as this cross-gen period is over, do you think we'll be back to being stuck in 1080p 30? (laughs) Or do you think developers will still target higher frame rates? John? So I think it's... I actually don't think we're going to see... All games go back to the 30 FPS. I think 60 FPS will continue to be relatively common, but I'm fairly positive that as we start to see really high-end AAA productions again, 30 FPS is going to make its triumphant return. Uh, especially, you know, we saw we were talking about the demo last week with Unreal Engine 5 from the Coalition, and you look at the frame time numbers in there, and you really start to see that this stuff is very heavy, right? And they're pushing for 1080p as the input resolution, 
Uh, but of course, they're temporarily upsampling this and sort of reconstructing it up to a higher resolution. So I don't think 1080p 30 is going to be the norm in terms of what you actually visually see. But I feel like, you know, when you see a studio like that, kind of like struggling to get to 60, even though it's, I, I, don't, I won't say struggling, it's not really them. It's more like the, it's, it's the engine focus, right? It's clear that Epic is targeting features. They, they want to push features that uh, are just flat out demanding. They push rendering forward, but they're expensive. Uh, and I guess you can pick and choose to some degree. Um, but you know, it's, it seems difficult, especially when, with ray tracing and all the GI stuff comes into play. Like we saw Metro Exodus, which looks great It's 60 FPS. They have the fantastic GI solution, but fundamentally it's still a last gen game, right? And the resolution was still pretty low at times. So I'm kind of thinking like, you know, when you start to really push the boundaries, what's going to happen? I think frame rate's going to take a hit. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense. I think 4A's next game on console might even target 30 FPS because they're going to upgrade, you know, assets and things like that. They're going to make it look better. Um, uh, you also have this one part of the cross-gen period. I just thought about this now was there's all this targeting of 60, but the people that are currently buying the, the consoles are like the hardcore fan base that are interested in new technology, interested in technical specs. Uh, I think as the, the fan base broadens out over time too, the uh, necessity of 60 FPS for the average consumer may go down just in terms of relative numbers uh, because there's going to be more people having the console that don't care as much about it. The thing I, I, I've, I've always wanted to do a study on this, but I do actually think 60 frames per second and higher is more important than we think because the, the more casual or consumer audience may not know what that means. But if you look at a lot of the top selling games, they're almost universally 60. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. they don't understand why Call of Duty feels better than some other game, but they know it does. It's just 60 frames per second. And the input latency is part of that, I think. Uh, but I guess on the plus side, you know, throughout this generation, we saw a lot of games that had a performance mode, right? Where they made visual cuts, right? The CPUs and last-gen machines generally meant that those performance modes would not be 60. They were just unlocked. Um, and I think that's what will probably differ this time. If you see games with a performance mode, it's a lot more likely that they will actually hit 60 because they can make cuts on the GPU side uh, and the CPU should hopefully have enough grunt to push it through. Kyle Zena. Zena. Um what are some of the more recent games out today that you most look forward to playing on high-end hardware five to ten years from now, like Microsoft Flight Simulator, Doom Eternal, or Crisis Remastered? What games do you wish you could play to their absolute maximum fidelity, Alex? Cyberpunk, I was just thinking about yesterday when there was rumors of next NVIDIA GPU hardware targeting two times 3090 30, performance. Once again, these are all rumors. Um, but I thought about, wow, well, that would mean around 1440p uh, 60 internally in at the highest psycho settings in uh, Cyberpunk. And I thought, that sounds really awesome. I would like to play that. So um, something like Cyberpunk, Flight Sim 4K 60 native, that also with perhaps, you know, like their eventual DXR implementation, that all sounds awesome. Crisis Remastered, eh, I mean, you already have DLSS in that game that offers a rather awesome experience at 60 FPS. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't think so. Crisis Remastered is maybe as sad as that is that I'm saying that. What about you, John? Uh, so th this is an interesting one because there really aren't that many games that 
have this feeling like I, you, I'm sure you were there when Far Cry came out and you play that and you're like, man, I should just put this back on the shelf for another couple of years and wait. Uh, that doesn't happen that often anymore. I think Cyberpunk's a good shout, but again, I was playing that with the highest settings at launch and with VRR, it was already like mostly 50 to 60 FPS. So, you know, higher frame rates would be nice, but, and Doom Eternal is a weird one to put in there because Doom Eternal is so fast. I just finished the game on my PC at pretty much 120 FPS locked uh, with all settings absolutely maxed out and ray tracing improved. And, you know, I had VRR to pick up any slack, but that was basically as perfect as you could ever want from that game, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, there aren't that many PC games. I mean, Flight Simulator is probably the best one there in terms of that game is just still super, super heavy. Uh, and it would be cool to be able to load that up in a way that it loads quickly and it just like runs at super high frame rates without any uh, fussing around at the highest details. So Next question. He's actually got two. He's snuck in two here. Two very different questions. Cheeky boy. Uh, Jonas Larson Tagizade. Uh, number one, given the increasing number of streaming-based Switch games... Are you planning any performance or latency analysis? Uh, I'm not excited by streaming on the Switch um, because, well, you know, it's a it's supposed to be a take anywhere platform, and you can't take those games anywhere. You can't, you know, let's say I'm doing a commute to London or whatever. I'm not going to be able to play those games on it. So it's kind of more of a technical curiosity, and it doesn't particularly excite me. I don't know what you think about that, John. No, same, you know, I mean, my stance on streaming is pretty clear anyway, but, uh, <laughs> to you be know, fair, not... to be fair, the, the games on, look better on a smaller screen. Uh, yeah, it's, it, it, it could work uh, from, from that sort of perspective. Um, but first of all, the switch itself isn't really well suited to this because obviously you don't get the mobile network, but even then it's Wi-Fi performance is lousy. So good, good luck with that. Uh, but, but you know, Beyond that, I actually don't think there there aren't that many games that are doing this on Switch. It's a pretty rare thing. Control did that. Resident Evil 7 did that. Hitman did that. You know, there's a few. Uh, it's an interesting idea, I guess. But, um, I mean, the only thing I could see is, you know, if this could tie into NVIDIA's already present streaming solution. You know, they have an NVIDIA GPU in there, right? Kind of. SOC. Uh you could get like the GeForce Now stuff on there. Um, but I guess the problem again is just the the actual networking performance of the Switch is very poor. <laughs> and <laughs> you can't really true. use it on the go. So it's not that interesting. This, this second question of his though, plans for FSR versus DLSS analysis now that we've got games that support both. Um, <laughs> so Alex, both you and I have looked at FSR now and we've essentially come to, and, we, and in fact, we've looked at the FSR source code. Uh, yeah. which you know yes, they are very, they they achieve the same end which is to say that um you get higher frame rates but um they're very different animals really fsr is basically a lower resolution solution that attempts to mitigate some of the artifacts of upscaling it isn't any kind of reconstruction technique and um, performance increases, uh, I think people were kind of underwhelmed by Marvel's Avengers. I was underwhelmed by um, Resident Evil Village, where the interlacing solution uh, seemed to be better than FSR, remarkably. Um, 
I'm just not particularly excited by these comparisons. Um, I think we should acknowledge that they're there. I think we should also acknowledge that FSR is 1.0 and will likely get better. Um, in actual fact, I'm going to give some clips to Audi here to show here. Um, something that I didn't put into the FSR uh, video, but was in the Eurogamer article. This is Resident Evil Village in an area that doesn't flatter FSR. Let's be clear about that. Um, 1080p, this is the performance mode at 4K upscaling. Okay, so, you know, there it is. And this is native 1080p from Resident Evil Village in the exact same area. I've captured it at native 1080p, and then I've used the media player in Xbox Series X to upscale it to 4K. And, you know, it to my eye, it looks much sharper. Maybe the edge uh, resolution isn't as good, but, you know, fundamentally, it just highlights that FSR is using uh, Lancho's upscaling. Um, and it's not actually using that many sample points, that many taps. And the Xbox Series Scaler actually uses a lot more sampling points. So you get a crisper image. So I think there's some interesting stuff that's happening with FSR in terms of um, uh, its how it it adapts to different content, but it is basically the fact that some content looks fine at a lower resolution and some doesn't. Comparisons to DLSS though, I mean, it's it's not anything like the same technique, but, but, it, but it just, you know, achieves a similar result of accelerated frame rates. And I also, you know, what, I, what I'm sort of generally um, unhappy about with these FSR versus DLSS comparisons is that, um, Fundamentally, the FSR will be disadvantaged in most scenarios unless there's a really bad DLSS implementation. And people seem to think that we're having a dig at AMD um, when we do this, when we're just looking at we're literally describing how it looks. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with everything you said there, Rich. I just, um, I think going for FSR versus DLSS analyses is playing into the hands of a of a discourse that I find uh, technically inaccurate. Like I wouldn't compare uh, checkerboarding versus FXAA resolution, uh, FXAA upscaling or something like that either. And I don't think developers would either if they're making a presentation or thinking about how they're gonna develop their games. These are two different things. Uh, they do two different things. They may in the end increase performance, but the end result is not supposed to be compared and AMD's, also, I don't think AMD is actually keen on comparisons as well. Um, and uh, I, I don't know, I just don't like the discourse surrounding it. And I think uh, maybe it's something that I would like to return to in time when FSR goes beyond its 1.0 implementation, whenever, if ever that occurs. But in the, in the meantime, I don't know. If, like, you can find that content elsewhere, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that, you know, fundamentally, it's a case of whether things, I mean, basically, whether we do content on Digital Foundry or not, a lot of the time, it's down to whether we find the technologies interesting or not. And um, there's there's nothing, um, there, there's no further mystery surrounding FSR. It's an, it's an upscaler. And it's attempting to essentially deliver a fidelity effects feature of the resolution scaling options that are in a lot of PC games already, but it's AMD's take on it. It's it's that simple. It's not trying to do image reconstruction. Although with that said, with the press deck for 6600 XT, I noticed that they're talking about um, FSR and um, ray tracing. 
and I don't think that's a good line of of um, of marketing for AMD to be doing. Um, but you know, each to their own. Um, a quick question here from the collector, which is kind of related to that. I've had a chance to try DLSS and FSR in some of the games that recently received FSR updates. I could see clearly better image quality with DLSS at the same setting, which results in slightly faster FPS for AMD. Is there any way to properly compare the compute perf or quantify graphical quality delivered? Otherwise, feels like we're not getting an accurate representation or impression rather of experience delivered by each. Well, you can certainly quantify uh, the the performance by doing frame rate tests. Um, and in terms of visual quality, you should be seeing very different results depending on the quality of the, you know, depending on the source content. Um, I mean, you know, again, going back to Resident Evil Village, you could see that FSR actually had some advantages over the interlaced checkerboarding technique. Um, but I do think also that checkerboarding is kind of on the endangered list, temporal supersampling and um, inference-based techniques like DLSS are going to completely replace it. So, yeah, it's it's something that isn't particularly interesting, I don't think. Um, but, you know, it is, and it, there's no doubt that it will accelerate performance. I guess with Resident Evil Village, I was just disappointed by the extent to which it was accelerated. Yeah, one thing that people need to get, and um, talking about Red Dead Redemption 2 here as well, uh, with its DLSS integration, that's also one where people are surprised a bit about how little DLSS wins in terms of performance getting back. So you have to think about uh, rendering like this. Um, DLSS and FSR insert at some point in the rendering pipeline, and there can still be things done after it, which are expensive that are done at the, the, the output native resolution, like post-processing. So you can have, depending upon the game, you can have lessened increases in performance by internally scaling down this internal uh, resolution value. Another thing that games have is that um, there are certain things that do not scale at all with resolution, like any sort of fixed compute function. We saw this in a game called, what's that game by um, Sebi that came out? Uh, Claybook, Claybook, for example, when they ported that to uh, Nintendo Switch, they could get a lot by just reducing the resolution in the game, but they found out eventually like, oh, we're actually doing all this compute stuff for particle physics that doesn't at all scale with resolution. So they had to like reduce the simulation quality uh, uh, to make the performance go back up because resolution didn't do anything for that. So that's one reason why you would see games not scaling completely with resolution. Uh, really quick to just say, Check it out on uh, Beyond 3D. There's a post uh, by Iroboto, who is also one of our Patreon backers, who's a really uh, kind person. And they've been doing image quality spectral analysis of a variety of different things. And uh, as part of that, they did a DLSS versus FSR, or DLSS versus FSR in some game, I think. And they found out very concretely that FSR just looks like a, a noisier lower res image with slightly different aspects than a, than a normal bilinear upscale. Uh, and well, they found out that DLSS has different aspects more akin to a real native resolution. And that's through spectral analysis and like noise analysis and all these things. Uh, so check that out if you're interested in a more interesting objective approach to look at these things. Put a link to that in the video description because it is really interesting work. This is like literally frequency analysis of, of the image. And um, you're hoping to integrate some of that work into what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's the end of the questions. But literally, breaking news. 
Whoa! <laughs> Breaking news. Um, Sony has released a support page for how to add an M2 SSD for PlayStation 5, um, which isn't particularly big news except for this bit, which says this feature is only available to beta users at this time. And um, yeah, and then there's been, there's well, um, Sony did put out a call to um, hardcore users to say, hey, do you want to beta test some firmware updates this summer? And it looks as though this is going to be one of the features which, which you know, we're hugely excited about. And second to that, um, the source for this is a bit weird. It looks like some kind of press event down in Australia or New Zealand. Um, but Seagate has confirmed that their new Fire CUDA 530 SSD is supported by the PlayStation 5. So the, the plot thickens. This Seagate SSD, 500 gigs for $150. Um, not sure whether that's, hopefully that's uh, Australian dollars. But oh yeah, that's, if, if it's an Australian event. If it's US dollars, that's problematic. A terabyte, two fifty-five dollars. Two terabytes, five hundred and forty. Yeah, this this comes from the Australian site, so yeah, let's hope. Yeah. So it could be one of these bizarre leaks from a overseas territory that's breaking an embargo. It's What's really interesting about this is that on the site here, um, they actually have two separate SKUs for each size. They have a five hundred gig and then five hundred gig with heatsink. Which is 40, 40 Aussie dollars or forty dollar dues more, um, <laughs> and then you know the one terabyte you see a fifty dollar increase right from three forty nine to three ninety nine. Okay, this 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 price is you just read risk. That must be the translated price. Ah, really? Wow. Because yeah, the, the the Aussie prices themselves are higher. Five hundred gigs for five hundred, or sorry, for one ninety nine. <laughs> dollar reduce so uh, the four terabyte with heatsink comes in at 1499 dollar reduce that is uh, an absurd price i would never give out for an nvme really ssd expensive. i mean you good look at, lord looking at the specs here it's also over spec for what it's doing it's 73,000 uh 7300 mbs to read and 6900 mbs to control write that's faster than what the ps5 needs it's also faster than what most users need for doing things on their PC. I don't know. Cerny told me that the uh, SSDs need that additional overhead because they have more priority queues for their specific SSD, you know, so they need a good deal of overhead there. There's another note here. There's, this is actually a quote from Jeff Park, who's a manager at Seagate Technology. He, he's the one that said, we've done testing with Sony on PS5 today, and we can confirm that the Firecuda Fire 530 with the heatsink has met all of the PS5 requirements. He says the SSD card slot is very narrow, so there's not much room for the SSD to mount. However, with the Fire Cuda 530, even with the heatsink on top, the slim design allows it to fit. Of course, without the heatsink, it's slimmer, so both will work in the system. So that makes me wonder then, if they're offering two models with the heatsink, you buy the one without the heat heatsink. I mean, they're saying it's fine, but man, like, what's the point of the heatsink then? Does, is it really like I I don't know like this this starts to get into like worry about the heat dissipation from that module. Well, they have you know obviously when you open up the SSD bay, it doesn't look like there's much in the way of cooling. But there was a comment I think from um, one of the execs at Sony who was saying that there is actually inlets there where the main fan 
uh, within the PlayStation 5 does circulate air from that compartment. So now, if that is the case, it shouldn't really need the heatsink, but I don't know. That's what I'm wondering. Like, they sell this heatsink one with a, at a premium price over the regular model. Like, you would only do that if you were concerned about, well, heat, right? So, I mean, I guess they're assuming some PCs, maybe. Uh, depending on the way it's configured in there, you might need that more than others. Like, I, I don't know. I think one of the biggest limitations of PlayStation 5 is the storage. Uh, there was the, the firmware update to um, be able to shunt PlayStation 5 apps to an external drive, which was highly welcome. But, you know, basically we need more than, you know, the 660 odd gigs of usable storage. And it looks as though we're finally getting there. And uh, that is uh, very exciting news. Highly welcome. It's also interesting that Seagate is the one coming out with the support first, and Seagate is the manufacturer of the Xbox. <laughs> yeah, uh, the Xbox SSD. SSD. Yeah. Which, by the way, I, I, I still want one of those. It's, it's a really, that, that form factor is excellent. It is. Uh, I feel like they really thought that, that through. It was very, very useful for Flight Simulator. No uh, doubt. When, when I took a look at that. Uh, the problem being that it didn't seem to transfer across the, um, the actual in-game downloads the external storage card so i had to re-download those again on series s but yes basically it is a expensive but um excellent solution it's not really that expensive judged by uh these prices. prices yeah we're seeing here but um yeah i mean they recognized the problem they came up with multiple solutions and the storage card is the best one and finally it looks as though the playstation 5 is going to achieve um, a similar level of functionality, but without the kind of hot swap ability. Um, but yeah, be interested to check that out. But the idea that it is actually in that beta firmware suggests it's not too far away. Right, maybe in the early fall, September or something. Absolutely, and uh, yeah, we're going to be all over that at the time. Checking out load time differences should be really interesting. See if there are any, you know, the really faster drives. Yeah, and to try out Ratchet on it. We know the Switch has differences, right? Internal memory versus SD versus the game cards. They're all different. Uh, will it be amplified here? I don't know. Well, that's the thing, because on a game like Ratchet and Clank, you can't have suboptimal storage. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> that's going to be our go-to game, I guess. Okay, but uh, interesting news to end with. But uh, thanks for joining me on this one. And if you enjoyed the content, please do like, subscribe, share. Ring the bell for instant. Yes, he said instant. Instant. Instant notifications um, whenever we drop new content. DF supporter program, join us. Join us on Discord. Ask questions at crazy times of the day, <laughs> which is which is which is awesome. But no, just generally a fantastic environment. Uh, um, really positive, very funny. Really makes our days better. And uh, obviously, there's tons of awesome stuff, awesome content going on uh, with Retro and um, Premium Tears. Uh, but that's all from us for now. Thanks for watching. Wow.